The hockey match between VVS Moscow and H.C. Derzinski on the evening of January 7, 1950, probably seemed like a pretty normal thing to anyone who was watching. VVS Moscow cruised to victory, winning 8-3. Not really a surprising outcome. They had some of the Soviets' top players on their squad and were easily considered the better of the two teams. But maybe, to the discerning fan, there might have been a few clues that something was... off. Some Moscow players, for instance, wore slightly bigger helmets than usual, obscuring their facial features a bit. Then, the next morning, the newspapers were a bit different too. With a few exceptions, the box scores only listed the last names of players who scored goals or tallied an assist. Usually, they'd feature the full name. Without too many first-hand accounts, it's hard to say if either of these discrepancies did much to arouse anyone's suspicion. But, in retrospect, we now know that those minor discrepancies were actually evidence of a large-scale, sinister cover-up. So what happened? Well, in a nutshell, Soviet politics happened, and hockey just happened to get caught in the middle. The end result was a missing plane and 19 dead bodies. And that story is next. Now here's a man who has what I would call a most varied career as a composer and record producer. With more than 150 albums to his credit, spanning a 40-year career, Peter Link is what you might call a working man's composer. Twice nominated for a Tony Award on Broadway, with a million-selling record to his credit, and winner of the New York Theater Critics Drama Desk Award, Link has seen great success in film scoring, Broadway musicals, pop music, gospel, television, and he's even written for the Joffrey Ballet. Now he presents his life's work in a podcast series called Scattershot Symphony, the music of Peter Link. Though each episode is roughly 90% music, he manages to regale us with fascinating stories and anecdotes related to his music over the years. Each episode looks at a different movement in the symphony of his life's work. So if you love music, and who doesn't, you'll love getting an insider's listen to the work, the music, the stories around the life in music. That scattershot symphony, the music of Peter Link. Now on to this episode of Obscure Ball. It's called... 42 Red. For most of the 20th century, the Soviet Union was a global superpower. While they helped rid the world of the Nazis and sent the first human into space, they also proved to be a bit of a menace. After World War II, the Cold War emerged, with both the Americans and Soviets stockpiling nuclear weapons, which pretty much kept the rest of the world on edge. To make matters worse, the Soviet Union began annexing huge regions of Eastern Europe. This meant that tens of millions of people lived under a totalitarian communist regime. Communism kind of expressed itself in different ways in different countries. During the Cold War, you had some that were more lenient than others. You had some that were more hardline, uh, but that was more before Stalin died in 53. That's Brendan Daniel a friend of mine from our college radio days. We've stayed in touch over the years thanks to fantasy football. Brendan has his master's degree in Russian, Eurasian, and Eastern European studies from UNC Chapel Hill, and currently lives in Poland, where he's worked and taught English for the past several years. While this episode isn't really a history lesson on communism, I at least wanted to provide some basic context for what things would have been like in the Soviet Union at the time. 
because without that context, the absurdity of the events in January of 1950 make even less sense than they already do. The Soviet Union was always something of a paradox. Founded on the basis of Marxism, which in the simplest of terms sought to address class struggles, it evolved into a brutal totalitarian regime. When you think about Karl Marx, you have to understand there were no communist parties anywhere, or if they were, they were nascent and just starting out, you know, and trying to promote their manifesto. There was no such thing as authoritarian communism at the time. It was just this idea, this radical idea. What Lenin did was saying, you know, Karl Marx's ideas are the ideas of the future. There must be a proletarian revolution, and I'm the guy who should lead it. And that's just, and that, that's just the end of Marxism. That's where Marx's, Marx's ideas end and Leninism begins because in Marxism, there is no idea for a leader to bring about uh, communism. It's supposed to happen organically. Once Joseph Stalin came along in 1922, he consolidated power. He quickly purged anyone that posed a threat to his rule. This could be rival politicians, so-called counter-revolutionaries, members of the middle class, and even working-class Soviets who simply didn't seem to be communist enough. They were generally sent off to forced labor camps, where they often died. That said, once you put aside famines, labor camps, suppression of free speech, and general human rights abuses, the Soviets can be credited with some pretty impressive advances, like sending the first human to space, launching the first man-made satellite, and of course, they're talented athletes. That last part is important, because along with science, space aviation, and weapon advances, sports were a good way for a country to assert their superiority, real or perceived. So with that in mind, Soviet elites began investing and developing top-of-the-line athletes to compete in the Olympics, and did so in a unique way. Back in the Soviet era, football teams and hockey, basketball teams were all linked to each other so each team would be backed by a sporting society which would sit oversee the football club the basketball team the ice hockey team chess gymnastics athletics and it would all be around this one sporting society james nichols is the editor-in-chief for russian football news an english language blog that covers russian football where he also hosts his own podcast his writing has been featured in these football times the guardian and the moscow times Plus, he has a master's in Russian history and language. Among other stories, he's covered Soviet soccer, or football, and the events of 1950. So he explained to me how there's all these different sporting societies, each one backed by different Soviet elites. One of those supposed elites was Vasily Stalin, son of Joseph. Now, Vasily was an interesting character, to say the least. He was Stalin's second son, and the firstborn in Russia. Being the son of the premier had its perks, as we'll see, but it wasn't always an awesome thing. He had quite a difficult youth, Vasily. His mother, Nadezhda, committed suicide in 1932. He was essentially raised by NKVD agents and the guards of the, of the dacha. And up until Nadezhda's suicide, Stalin would visit Vasily quite often. Obviously, he couldn't see him every day because of his duties as the premier. But after her death in 1932, he, he basically cut off all forms to his, of contact to his children. And it was very much just a professional capacity from that point on. This dynamic turned out to be a damaging experience. From a young age, he used alcohol as a coping mechanism, and by the time he was 13, he was a full-blown alcoholic, 
often attacking members of the household in fits of drunken rage. So to help him get his life together, Stalin forced Vasily to join the Air Force in 1938, where he actually had some semblance of success. During the Nazi invasion of 1941, he saw limited combat, and eventually rose to the rank of Major General when he was only 24. However, this promotion was likely an act of nepotism, especially because it came after an incident that foreshadowed the bizarre events of 1950. The incident in question was a good example of Vasily's incompetence. He got really drunk and ordered explosives dropped into the Moscow River as part of some sort of military demonstration, accidentally killing two flight engineers and injuring several others. As bad as it was, it was only the second biggest air disaster of his making. Towards the end of the war in 1944, Vasily turned his interest to sports. He helped start a new sporting club called VVS Moscow, which was the official club of the Air Force. Vasily named himself the president of the club and set about creating a sporting society that could compete with the best of the best. He recruited more than 300 athletes and commissioned a state-of-the-art complex where they could train. It was a good start, but Vasily didn't know that much about sports and turned out to be an exceptionally poor manager of the club, which probably wasn't helped by his drinking habit. He was known for feuding with coaches and players, and at least early on, the team struggled to hold their own against superior opponents. This was made worse by the success of his hated rival, Dynamo Moscow, headed by the notorious Leventry Beria. Now, Beria was one of the ultimate Soviet bigwigs. Once the head of the Soviet secret police, known as the NKVD, and later the deputy premier under Stalin, Beria was a cold, calculated politician who oversaw a number of violent purges and massacres, namely the Katyn Massacre of 1940, when the NKVD slaughtered some 22,000 Polish military officers and citizens. It was also revealed later on that he was a serial sexual predator who raped hundreds of women. So, he was pretty evil. But under his thumb, Dynamo Moscow won the Soviet Hockey Championships in 1947, while the football club racked up a handful of championship titles as well. Beria and Vasily hated one another. Largely because Vasily was one of the few people in the Soviet Union that Beria couldn't intimidate, thanks to his last name. And sports turned out to be the only frontier where they could battle one another. You have Beria in one hand, head of the NKVD, head of the president of Dynamo Moscow Sporting Society. Vasily in the other hand, the son of the Red Tsar, the head of VVS Moscow Sporting Society. But because of his position and patronage, of each man's position and patronage, they both held Stalin's favour and they hated each other. They absolutely despised each other as a result. But the only place they could really fight each other and show their dominance over one another was on the football pitches, was on the hockey pitches, basketball. So they used VVS and Dynamo basically as, as a way to battle each other. And caught in the middle of this battle between the basically two of the most powerful men in the Soviet Union was Nikolai Staritsyn. Nikolai Staritsyn is a pretty sad part of this sordid tell. He was a star athlete in the Soviet Union, and, along with his three brothers, was the founder of Spartak Moscow. Like James mentioned, Spartak wasn't linked to any one society, though they were eventually backed by the Food Workers Union. At the time, they were seen as the People's Team, maybe even an anti-establishment club, which naturally upset Politburo folks such as Beria. To make matters worse, they were pretty good. In fact, maybe they were too good. 
they often got the better of Dynamo on the soccer pitch, and Beria, perhaps tired of the rivalry, had Stardzin and his brothers arrested for anti-Soviet agitation. A purposely vague term that allowed the Politburo to arrest anyone they felt threatened by. The brothers were sentenced to 10 years in the Gulag, the Soviet labor camp system. And after a few years, Stardzin was released and living in exile. His absence opened the door for Dynamo to be the dominant force in the Soviet League. But then, Vasily intervened. He received a phone call from Vasily personally, and this was Staritsyn, who, who at this point had started and ran the most successful club in the sporting society in the country. And Vasily wanted him back in Moscow to take over and to, to run VVS Moscow for him. But there was a problem in this plan. After his arrest, Storitsyn had been banned from staying in any major city in the Soviet Union. On the orders of Beria, of course. But Vasily forged ahead with his plan anyway. He pulled a few strings and had him registered to stay in Moscow and reunited Storitsyn with his family. It was a really sweet moment, and for a few days Storitsyn was happy. Until Beria struck again. After just under a week back in the, in the capital, he was told that his registration had been cancelled and they had to sign a document asking him to leave the capital within 24 hours. Beria had intervened. Vasily had got Staritsyn back, got him back to his family, was there to ready to, to bring VVS into the next level and to, and to make them like Spartak were. And, and Staritsyn was going to be the man to run VVS for Vasily. But of course, Beria is the head of the NKVD, the head of the secret police. If he says something, it happens, regardless of who, who Vasily's father is. And this goes back and forth. Vasily gave him shelter, which was basically house arrest, and Storyton didn't like that. So he left and got arrested by the secret police and sent on a train back into exile. But then Vasily's henchmen intercepted the train and brought Storyton back to Moscow where he hatched yet another plan. And Vasily decided to take revenge against Beria. And in, in taking revenge, it was just by chance that Dinamo played VVS Moscow on that day in, in the football pitches. And in front of all of the security service men, all of the NKVD, all of the apparatchiks of the Politburo, Vasily entered the Dinamo Stadium, Beria's home stadium, alongside Staritsyn. And Beria's face just dropped. That's the, the, the sources of him furiously just, just berating at Vasily there with the man that he thought was, was gone, was exiled again. He was, he was sentenced to the Gulag again, but Vasily turned up with him. This bold stunt annoyed even Stalin. And eventually, Vasily was forced to give up Storitsyn, who was forced back into exile. So with that plan aborted and his club still failing, Vasily again pulled rank and managed to strong-arm players from other clubs to join VVS Moscow. Most notably was a two-sport athlete named Veselvod Bobrov. On both the soccer pitch and in the hockey rink, Bobrov was one of the best athletes the Soviet Union ever produced. Despite basically being forced to join VVS, Bobrov formed an odd friendship with Vasily. Where Vasily was an alcoholic and known for fatal blunders, Bobrov was a world-class athlete and future gold medal Olympian. Whatever the reasons, the two men got along well, and their friendship was the focus of a 1992 film. From the inception of the Soviet League in 1946, Bobrov played for CDKA and absolutely dominated the other teams in the hockey rink. He scored 52 goals in 1947 
while VVS Moscow won a measly five games all season long. So Vasily simply forced Bobrov to join VVS along with the CDKA goalkeeper. You know, if you can't beat him, make him join your team. The same thing happened with the entire first line from Spartak. Soccer? Same deal. Vasily offered players bigger wages, apartments, and higher military ranks if they jump ship to VVS Moscow. For the most part, his efforts began to bear some fruit. By 1950, VVS Moscow's hockey club had established itself as one of the premier teams in the Soviet League, anchored by their new star, Bobrov. But even as at least the hockey club began to improve, I got the sense from my research that the club played well in spite of Vasily Stalin, not because of him. And that difference, while it seems small, is important. Because by now, we've established a pretty clear picture of Vasily, born to a brutal dictator and a mother who committed suicide, an unshakable drinking habit, his need to prove himself to the Soviet elites, and a brutal political system that placed national honor above all else, all contributed to the disastrous events in January of 1950. It's hard to piece together exactly what happened, mainly because the Soviets effectively suppressed information from leaking. But here's what we do know. On January 5th, 1950, the VVS Moscow Hockey Club was traveling by a military plane to Chelyabinsk to take on H.C. Drzezinski. On the plane were 11 players, a doctor, a masseuse, and six crew members, 19 people in all. The conditions in Chelyabinsk were reportedly bad. It was January in Russia, after all, and the plane was forced to reroute to nearby Sverdlovsk, known today as Katerinburg a large city in western Siberia. But conditions there were bad too. Worst of all, the plane, registered as 42 Red, had lost all communication with air control and made four attempts at landing without any guidance. Each time, the pilots pulled up, unable to find the runway. The fifth attempt was the final attempt. It was fatal. The plane missed the runway entirely, crashed into a hill, and killed everyone on board 42 Red. Officially, the cause of the crash was poor weather. But the Soviet Union, being the Soviet Union, has suppressed information about the crash, and there's a lot we probably don't know. But a very likely possibility is that the crash could have been avoided, even with the bad weather. Now, we, don't, we aren't sure how much influence Vasily himself had had on, on pushing this flight to go ahead, on, on not missing this game. But what you do know for a fact is that his insistence on using the Lysanov Li-2 plane from his, the armed forces team, the military plane that no other team needed. This isn't a passenger plane. They don't need this for these flights. But it was all about the bravado of the VVS Moscow, the armed forces team, showing up in the biggest, the most technologically advanced plane in the Soviet Union. It was so technologically advanced, but the place they were going, every single radio station along the way didn't have the technology to match it. So in other words, had they just used a regular plane, they might have been able to land. Even so, the flight never should have happened to begin with. Whether or not the, the pilots were forced to continue course, we'll never know, unfortunately, or at least now we cannot, can never say. But they should have turned around. It's absolutely 100% clear that they should never have completed this flight. It was a tragedy, to be sure. But the events that followed were criminal, to put it mildly. A bizarre scheme and a decades-long cover-up prevented the families of the deceased and the general public from knowing what happened. 
More on that after the break. Hey there, hope you're enjoying the episode. Just a quick reminder that if you're a brand, an artist, storyteller, or anyone who just wants to connect with an audience, Small League Productions can help you create a handcrafted podcast, if you want. SmallLeagueStew.com has more information, and you can drop me, Stuart, a message there. Okay, let's get back to the episode and see how Vasily screws up this situation even further. So by the early morning hours of January 6, 1950, Vasily Stalin had two big problems. The most pressing problem was that his hockey team died in a plane crash. Well, most of the team anyway. As luck would have it, three players, including Bobrov, missed the flight, so he had a few players for a match that, despite the death of 19 people, he still intended on playing. But the bigger problem, at least from Vasily's perspective, is that the whole thing was pretty much his fault. And he was terrified of what his father, Joseph Stalin, would do. If he had copped to that, if he had gone to his dad and said, look, I did something bad, there's no telling what could have happened. And I emphasis on the no telling part because there's no media in the, in the Kremlin or uh, in, Stal- in Stalin's residence. There's no correspondence with a free media that's going to get the word out about what happened, there's going to continue only to be rumors and, and hearsay because the media to this point was about glorifying the Communist Party, glorifying Stalin. You may recall that Brendan has studied Eastern European politics, and he's right when he says there's no telling. Conventional wisdom would tell you that Vasily was Joseph's son, and he wouldn't have gotten in that much trouble. And maybe that would have been the case. On the other hand, this is Joseph Stalin we're talking about. And there's plenty of folks within the Politburo who would have liked to have seen Vasily disappear. So with the blood of 19 dead people on his hands, his beloved hockey team nearly wiped out, and the potentially severe consequences of that, Vasily needed to come up with a solution. And he found one that would fix all of his problems. It was two days before the game that they arrived in Chelyabinsk. So to avoid anyone else's or Stalin Sr.'s suspicions in particular, Vasily completed the teams with the team of players who either have the same last name as one who is deceased. As crazy of a stunt as it was, replacing dead players with stand-ins, it was also weirdly possible. Remember, Vasily was the president of VVS Moscow, with hundreds of athletes, literally, at his disposal. One player was replaced by his brother, and in the press it just had his second name again, no first name. Uh, Alexander Mosiev was replaced by a, a non-related player with the same name. And then other ones were just replaced by new players. And again, there were three players who happened to not be on the plane. Viktor Shuvalov had recently been traded from Chelyabinsk earlier in the season and planned to skip the game to avoid some possible hostility from the home team fans. Vasily ordered him to show up and play. Team captain Alexander Vinogradov was also suspended for two games, but was quickly reinstated. And of course, the best player on the team, Bobrov, had simply overslept and missed the plane. So the three players traveled to Chelyabinsk by train and only learned of the plane crash upon arriving for the game. 
whatever emotional reaction they had upon learning that 11 of their teammates had just died, Vasily forced them to play hockey. So within 48 hours of a deadly plane crash, VVS Moscow, now consisting of three regular players and 11 more disguised as the now dead players, took to the ice to play H.C. Drzezinski. Despite everything, VVS won 8-3. From there, the ruse continued. The next morning, when the papers published the box scores, only the last names of players who scored goals or assists were listed, the exceptions being Bobrov, Shuvalov, and Vinogradov. I never found any of these box scores, but what we do know is that it seems like these replacement players held their own. So, who were they? VVS had, at the time, over 350 athletes throughout the all of their different societies, so they, they were reserves or just people that they plucked up from nowhere. That's, that's the irony of it is some of these people that they picked up would almost certainly have been nowhere near good enough to play at the level that they were asked to play at. But because some of the survivors, like Bob Rover mentioned earlier, who was so good, they and because, to be honest, the, the opponent's tractor weren't, weren't very particularly that good at the time. So they still won 8-3. Despite his limited intellect, Vasily was able to keep the plane crash a secret from the public. That takes some dark skills, and he probably had some help from the Soviet government, who eventually found out what happened and helped suppress the truth to avoid embarrassing Stalin. It would be another 41 years before the families of the deceased learned what happened, and this was only after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Even if they suspected anything was amiss, and they probably did, there was nothing they could have done about it. People disappeared all the time in the Soviet Union. By the time this happened in 1950, there was mass paranoia in the Soviet Union. There was a great fear of speaking freely even in private because you never knew who could be an informer. Stalin did hire a lot of people to keep their eyes and ears open, like in neighborhood units of the Communist Party, to root out any dissent. And a lot of innocent people ended up going to the Gulag just because Stalin wanted to squash dissent. VVS Moscow went on to win three consecutive Soviet Cups in hockey from 1951 to 53. And for a brief moment, Vasily might have finally felt like he was living up to his father's expectations. But then Joseph Stalin died in 53, and things changed. Vasily was briefly given a military post, but his heavy drinking and erratic behavior only got worse, and he was arrested in April of 53 and charged with Soviet denigration, anti-Soviet propaganda, and a handful of other trumped-up charges. He spent the next seven years in a Soviet prison before being released in 1960. He died two years later from alcoholism. His longtime rival, Beria, also fell victim to the Soviet system. Soon after Stalin's death, Beria himself was arrested in June of 53 and tried with treason. The once feared, wrathful head of the NKVD was sentenced to death and executed in December. It all seems crazy. 19 people died in a plane crash, their families left in the dark, Storitsyn forced to live in exile, Vasily drinking himself to death, and Beria executed so others could consolidate power. Soviet politics were nothing if not brutal, and sports was just a manifestation of that brutality. The ideal that sport was, sport was an art form was held by players such as Bobrov. It was to an extent held by Vasily. He did love hockey, particularly hockey. It was, it was his favorite sport. 
And, the, and Bobrov and Vasily were influenced by Anatoly Tarasov, who they saw as the father of the Soviet sporting system. But once again, because the Soviet system is so paradoxical in everything that it does, in direct juxtaposition to that, the bureaucrats and apparatchiks saw Stalin as the father of the Soviet system. And these cold-hearted practical ideals towards sport as a political means to announce the superiority of the Soviet Union was paramount. And that's what it was all about. These men had basically suffered within, had, had starred for the Union. They were fantastic athletes. Bobrov in particular, two sports at the same time, highly successful in both. But at the end of the day, it was just trapped within the Soviet system. You could argue, though, that Bobrov came out better than most. His time with VVS was interesting, to say the least. He ultimately led them to three Soviet Cups in hockey, and went on to win a gold medal for the Soviet Union in 1956. He was later made a Knight of the Order of Lenin, one of the only hockey players ever to do so. He died in 1979, after a long period of de-Stalinization. And in 1997, he was elected into the International Hockey Hall of Fame. In many ways, it was a remarkable achievement. In an era when the Soviet Union effectively outlawed any sense of individualism, Everything was done for the glorification of the regime, after all. Bobrov managed to break through all of that. In fact, James found a poem called Breakthrough Bobrov and shared part of it with me. Watching the flight of the ball and the puck, like the other worlds, and forever, Russian, native, in people's memory, played by Vesovolod Bobrov. And it was, I thought it was just quite nice that somebody would consider, would write that about him and just, and then just leave it. Obscureball is presented by Small League Productions. For more information on how Small League Productions can help you create a handcrafted podcast, visit smallleaguestew.com. Music for this episode and past episodes are courtesy of Storyblocks. A special thanks to Brendan Daniel and James Nichols for their contributions to this episode. You can follow Obscureball on Instagram and Twitter at Obscureball. And be sure to subscribe wherever you get podcasts so you can get updates when new episodes are released which is occasionally.